1: Our journey through the book of Romans continues today as Abounding Grace turns back to Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Join us for an exciting look at grace and exactly what grace is. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, we greet you in Christ and welcome you to today's broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Our message is simply entitled, The Reign of Grace, and we are in chapter 5 of Romans verses 18 through 21. The Apostle Paul lays out for us a marvelous look at just what grace is and how complete it really is. Here's Pastor Gary and
2: today's program. Uh, Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. These are glorious verses. Setting forth the obedience of the servant and his atoning death on the cross 700 years before it happened. This is the only ground of God's acceptance of sinners. When the Messiah came, what did he say? He, he, he said this in John 6, verses 38 through 39. But I'm actually going to start in verse 35 so you get the gist of it all. <clears throat> Chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. That all, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And then John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh from me, but I lay it down of myself. John 17, verses 4 and 5, right at the end of his death. I have glorified thee on the earth, Jesus prays to the Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest to me, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. In Philippians 2, 7, we read, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Then Hebrews chapter two. Um, yeah, Hebrews chapter two. I could go on and on with this, but let's look at Hebrews two ten. For it became him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing my sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So how are we made right with God? It is through the obedience of Christ. Everyone here is going to lie on a deathbed one day. Some of you, when you get there on that bed, won't be conscious. So you need to make sure you take care of what is the most important thing you will ever decide before that happens. It could happen today in an automobile accident. It could happen 40 years from now. But why would anyone wait until the end when they could walk with God now? There is one thing that will save you and make your death bed the passing of Jordan into the promised land. Rather than the passing of your flesh and soul into eternal hell. And that is only the obedience of Christ. Don't hold on to your feelings. Those will let you down every time. Don't hold on to your thoughts of, well, ah, I'll make a deal with God. There are no deals the condemned can make with God, the judge. There is one thing we must make much of and hold on to, and that is the obedience of the Son of God in our place, His sacrifice on the cross. And why do we make much of it? Why can we have so much confidence in that cross? Because it was the sinless Lamb of God who suffered on the cross for us. Because he entered into the most holy place to offer himself in place of our sins who was himself holy. He was harmless, undefiled, obedient. And what did he offer on it? The unstained altar of his own obedience to God. Everywhere scripture says rejoice, glory, in the obedience of the Son of God in our place. Now back to Romans 5. So we are to enjoy this free gift because he has made us righteous in Jesus because of his obedience. Verse 20. Paul returns to an idea that he introduced actually in verses 13 and 14. Why the law? Because you see the Jews to this day even still look to the law, even though they have replaced it with their own traditions, they still look to the law as their righteousness. But Paul said God sent the law to do something else. He said to make the offense abound, hyper-abound. Why? Why? Well, verses 13 and 14, we all already learned no other law was necessary between Adam and Moses to condemn the whole world or the old world because all men were represented in Adam and they heard God's voice there and that was actually enough. But God gave the law to reveal among its many purposes, it's not its only purpose, but to reveal and aggravate our sin because now we can't plead an excuse because there's no ignorance left for us. We can't say, well, come on. We've got covenant representation and we've got God's written revelation. But now that the law has come, it shows how wicked not only Adam's treason was that he disobeyed God, but it shows also that When we commit our actual transgressions, we take the word of justice that fell on Adam and we sharpen its edge. Why? Because we knew better. Because we already had all those years before. And we've seen all the years since God gave the law through Moses of what happened to the world because we have rebelled against God. But now that the law comes and it shows us how evil rebellion against God truly is. But God didn't leave us there. The second half of verse 20. Where sin abounded. Some have taken that as what Paul will talk about later in Romans 7. Of law stirring up the desire for sin. I'm not sure that is what Paul is referring to here. But where sin abounded where its grossness and blackness abounded, when God gave the light of his law, grace did much more abound. Now, we've got to see both sides of these because the gospel is balanced. On the one hand, in our condemnation in Adam, we see how black we are. We broke our father's commandment in the garden He has given us his law, and we have broken it time and time again. Beloved, we are vile. We are wretched sinners. But God sent his son into the world to save sinners like you and me. So our plight is much more horrible than Adam's was. If now having God's gospel, we turn away from it. Our plight is much worse than the men in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because not only do we have God's law... But we also have the gospel of his son that he has now been sent into the world to save us from our sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the sword of the executioner, fell upon him. So the question for us is, in light of the aggravation of sin, are we clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Are you clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul has a very important question to ask in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? How are you doing with the sin in your life as a believer? Because understand, every time as a believer, even though this is not primarily what Paul is talking about here, although he is going to go to it, every time we sin with our tongue, as professing Christians, every time we think immoral thoughts, worried thoughts, anxious thoughts, covetous thoughts, we are taking back up the cross to slew the Son of God. We are dabbling in treating holy things with contempt. That is why as Christians, we take seriously what Adam did and what we lost in him. Because if we don't, we are not going to take seriously what we gain in Christ, beloved. Why do you think sometimes when you hear a gospel sermon or you read a great book on theology and then for a week or two you're just flying high emotionally and then you just settle back down and then oftentimes when we settle back, we settle into sin. We have to keep both of these things in view. The reason we keep running to the cross is because we, because we keep seeing how sinful we are and how we need the obedience of Jesus Christ. You're not going to be led to the cross by sentiment. It's not going to be able to sustain you. And we must face this. I had to deal with this in my own life, and I believe many of you have as well. You know, you can raw, raw, raw all you want to. But the cross, my friends, is a dark and ugly place. There is no room there for, oh, sweet Jesus, isn't it wonderful? I just want to look to him. No, the cross is ugly. Why? Because we are ugly and because our sins are ugly. And we've got to keep that in mind or we are never going to run to Jesus and keep fleeing to him for refuge. So, beloved, if you make light of your sins, you make light of the cross. If you drink too much and say, oh, it's no big deal. You're making light of the cross. Any of us lustful, prideful, waste money, waste time. It's no wonder then we make light of the cross. These things are all held in connection. The more we see how low we have sunk, the more we run to the Lord Jesus Christ and the we see how wonderful He is, and the more His grace abounds in our life. And there, the word in Greek actually is hyperabound, or superabound. So, you want a grace to abound in you? If you want grace to abound in your life, then be humbled by your sins and see what God has done for you in Jesus. Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. And then you will come to love Jesus even more. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, and you will love Jesus. Make your calling and election sure, and that will run you to the cross. So that as sin abounded in our fence in Adam because God gave the word and showed how wicked we were. So his grace abounds in the wondrous provisions he has made for us in the gospel. So Paul's conclusion, verse 21, that if sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace run reign through righteousness unto eternal life by, the, by Jesus Christ our Lord. So as dark as we once were, sin reigning unto death, so now grace reigns through righteousness and much more. In Adam we were condemned criminals. In Jesus we are righteous sons and daughters of the Most High God. Through Jesus, God has cleansed our filth. If you know now the Son of God, your filth is cleansed. You're totally pure. You are righteous before him. Notice here, though it is grace reigning through righteousness. Because God's grace is not lawless. Lawless grace is an enemy of the gospel. Notice what Christ's grace required. Grace required the death of the Son of God, His precious blood on the cross. And by the way, that ought to ever do away with any thoughts of, well, you know, as Christians, we don't worry about the law. We don't worry about the law. Then we may or may not worry about the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because of lawlessness. So lawless living, as Paul will argue in chapters 6 through 8, sinful living in the Christian is spitting on the cross and on the grace of God. But that is not actually his point here. The emphasis here is upon the fountains of grace that are open to us through the one-time obedience of Jesus. That is the righteousness that is being emphasized here. Jesus' obedience for us. Oh, beloved, make much of his obedience. Hold fast to it. Because the only way God's kindness reigns in our lives is because Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, eternally one with the Father, the one true God, took upon himself our flesh, was born of a virgin, lowly in a stable. The king, riding on a donkey, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, took all of our sorrows, all of our diseases upon himself, was sunk so low because of our sins, and he obeyed. He said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We owe everything to the Son of God. We will never taste a sip of God's kindness except it was purchased with a drop of his blood. So if we want grace to reign, we must look to the obedience and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be a lot of people, unrepentant sinners, who will vainly hope that God will somehow be merciful to them when they stand before him. Maybe they'll say to God, I did the best I could. And God, if you don't set my best, then you're just unfair. Many people hope, well, you know, I'm going to tell God I did the best I could. And he'll just kind of wink at me and say, you know, all those preachers about sin and hell, they were taking things too seriously. That's all I expect you to do. Just do the best you can. You know, just give it the old college try. It's okay, we won't worry about all those sins. God will just pat them on the back and say, come on in, let's have a beer together. God's just our good body. He doesn't take things too seriously. Sometimes in my fleshly weakness, when I want to take things less seriously, and when I think in the Bible, be sober, be vigilant, okay, but I'm tired of being sober. Not that I really have ever been that sober, or vigilant but i'm tired there is one thing that puts things in perspective the cross because god would never have put his holy one to grief if there were any other way for sinners to be reconciled do you understand that beloved thus if you are to be right before god The whole point of verses 12 through 21, if we are to have righteousness before God, it comes only through the obedience of Jesus Christ. There is no other obedience God will accept. None. So you must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, your head is still Adam. And you are under condemnation. And you are under wrath. But God... In his mercy says to us now, look to my son and live. Any sinners out there? Trust in the blood and righteousness of the son of God, obedient and crucified for us. And be cleansed, be forgiven, be reconciled to God through what he did once for all. There is no other savior. There is no other righteousness. God says to us, he says to all, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for sinners and that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is God's work. He saves sinners. Man does not save himself. It is all of God. So we have a real problem in the American culture, don't we? So many things are designed around men saving themselves. Politics, health, easy money, finances, easy sex, easy drugs, easy religion. Salvation wasn't easy. It cost the blood of the Son of God. So we've got to reject all of man's attempts to save himself. We are condemned in Adam. We are righteous through the obedience of Christ. Look to him only. By the way, then when you stumble, because let's be honest, in many things, as James said, we stumble. But it gives you the opportunity to love Jesus more. Why? Because what you are going to do when you fall into sin this week, everyone here is going to, to a greater or lesser degree, run back to the Son of God And we are going to go to the fountain that he opened up for us. We're not going to go and say, God, now now I did all of this other good stuff. So you've got to overlook. You are going to have to forget all of that. It's garbage. We have to go right back to that fountain and drink of that water again and love Jesus more. And if we do, then we'll sin less. Do you want? To sin less than love Jesus more, and love what He has done for you more on the cross by His obedience. stand before the gospel and see how He has obeyed and died in our place. Everything beloved in the Christian life, the Christian feelings I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I want feelings that are good and holy. But everything comes from being humbled by what Christ has done for us. May we all super abundantly praise him for God has done for us what we cannot do ourselves. So if you know him, you have reason to praise him now and forever. He has shown mercy to us poor sinners. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. He did it of his own free grace and his kindness. So beloved, live to his praise and glory. I've said this many times. We ought to be the happiest people on the face of this planet. Confess his mercy to others and remember. Life for the Christian is full time service to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What is your testimony to the world around you? Is it that you're smart? Is it I'm reformed? Is it that you are good? That you are conservative? Trust me, that will win, not win anyone. Our testimony must be, I was a sinner and God had mercy upon me through Jesus. When was the last time you said that to anyone? We worry too much about, well, i got to win this argument or I've got to prove that doctrinal point. There is a time and a place to defend God's truth. But our witness to the world is fundamentally one. God saves sinners through the obedience of Christ. And he saved this wretched sinner through the blood of his son. When you die, let that be what men remember for you. Not he was an arrogant Presbyterian or on your tombstone that he thought he knew everything. Let everyone say this man